little bio. So if you want to render that, if you this asteroid to be converted into basic elements of built and destruction, you would just that kind of lichen would be a kind of lichen that uses solar energy and the, the code is the light and, and occupies that space and it starts to manufacture, absorb the asteroid. And then it produces pollen, which goes out and it's networked pollen. Um, it's in the York cloud, as, as Freeman Dyson says. Um, and then life is off the Earth, and it's a very different kind of life. It's certainly not sentient life, but it's very effective. Some of the spores get, get sort of stuck in interstellar space, eventually. Of course, they need, a, they need atoms, at least as far as we know, to, to actually have a matrix to live in. Are they very ordered atoms? So, in the long view, it's you know, we're the ladder that life is trying to climb on. And you know, along the way, we'll get great terraformers that will make lots of living space outside the Earth. But do you think, you don't sound like you're of the school that thinks that we're close to some kind of AI and that when it goes over the threshold within a matter of hours, it will just inflate into some kind of thing that can't we can't even relate to and will be of no interest to. Um, no, I, I really I think of course it's hard, you know, once to define intelligence and consciousness. I I think that people underestimate the trial of error, the error proneness of living processes. Um, but on the other hand the iteration speed of these machine life is so but the, the there's a difference. The ecosystems that they're living in are extremely arid. They're basically life living in these very narrow tubes connected by very chancy processes. Even the wires. The wires, yeah, and the servers and things. If that's how it stays. And whereas an ocean, you know, an ocean with a, a billion trillion parallel processes and black smokers and, and Right. And super plumes going up and carrying river is a massively different ecosystem where you could have a lot of things happening at once on the same beast, a lot of reactions that happen at the same time. I think the error rate is going to be, is always the crippling factor. Now, why, for instance, didn't we invent, with all the science fiction, we invent something that eats all silicon and it comes down to the earth and it eats all carbon based lives and we're all gone? I think it doesn't happen because uh, general purpose things are hard to, they're, they're really uh, ill-suited for survival. And then when you're specific purpose, you're, you're, you're prone to lots of errors. So I don't think there's going to be planet eaters anytime soon. I don't think it was the, the planet eater scenario so much as the idea that once something became sentient, it would immediately design something beyond itself and that you would get a cascade of self-perfecting machine intelligences that would leave your go over the horizon before you knew what was going on. I think that, and this is the theme of the next bio-conference, which we think that sponsorship would be held in Australia, symbiogenesis. That every life form is, contains the code of the previous ones and modules, like the cell-absorbing the mitochondria, mitochondria. Mm-hmm. and the things are, are built that way and so for instance human 
human life as an organism is, is, is a bolus of biological organisms surrounded by metabiological forms called culture and, yeah. and that is yeah. in fact there's no way to regenerate a Frankenstein that's separate from all that it's always going to contain the errors and the powers of the previous now of course if we generate nanite lichens that are code based that are living in the solar system they'll be so simple they'll be like a slime wall right. um, and won't, wouldn't achieve consciousness Complexity they would achieve the ability to survive on an Oort cloud surface and evolve you know, through error and process over probably tens of thousands of years, reach a certain. But they may be, evolve to become giant coral-like slime molds and you know, just simply consume resources because that's what life seems to do when it enters a new ecosystem. Consume all of it. But doesn't it also tend to modify the ecosystem to make it easier on itself? And that when the at a thousand megahertz for ten thousand years, yeah. you don't really know what you're going to come back and find. Yeah, I guess I, I agree, and I, I think that what would happen in around two thousand forty or fifty, the transmissions between the organisms, the bios suddenly will not be interpretable anymore. In, for the first few years, they will be spreading across objects, even you know, asteroids and bits and pieces of dust this big is enough for a colony. As long as it's got certain ingredients and it's facing the sun. And it's, so you'll be able to actually track and understand and then suddenly the messaging that, that like Tom Ray's Tierra will get so you can't understand it anymore. And there's no way for anyone to interpret what communication is about. They'll understand fundamental sort of operating system calls. Won't be running Windows, but that that the organism will be making kind of housekeeping, but there will be a meta language that evolves. That would be uh, contextualized for the organism. Yeah, and and it'll be like bird calls that evolve something. And that would be the moment where we have first contact with in two weeks, there's a conference called Contact 16, which is the 16th annual kind of Jim Finero's conference. About, it's uh, anthropologists and space scientists and science fiction writers that meet every year and talk about this, this kind of stuff. Uh-huh. This is what I'm going to talk about. Where will it be held? It's in San Jose, and at, at NASA Ames one day. Uh-huh. And I'm going. You're going. The three NASA guys come out. I was so impressed. our friend uh, Dominic, he said, this, those guys have got their hip detectors out. Well, there's a lot of study going on of the genetics that controls birdsong and uh, how it localizes and what's actually going on. And it begins to look like there's a pretty seamless process right straight through to complex language, that it's just a 
mutation of this signal generating impulse. And this, this, I think, language will will tell us the day when we have something not necessarily sentient, but something that is no longer of anything we can understand. And it will be from that point on an attempt to contact this mass, this bolus that will be in the ring around around the solar system and it will be tracked um, and um, it will become the second Terran ecosystem and uh, well, they'll do work for, to support us they'll render down comments and you know, feed mass drivers or whatever it is do but there will be this, like any good farmer with the seeds in his crops there will be a lot of unpredictability where they go these nano-colonizations of earth cloud material that originally is established for mineral recovery? Uh, Probably. For for construction, uh, for fuel construction in the outer solar Uh system. Why the outer solar system? Why not the asteroid then? There's not enough element, a variety of elements. I think the Jovian system is going to be that's where the action is. That's where the action is. So many interesting satellites and so much incredible electrodynamics and magnetodynamics in that system. Uh, if you want to do anything to Mars, you've got to drop a whole lot of water onto it. So. But they're obsessed with Mars for some yeah, reason. It's kind of, I think it's a mistake. But it, it, NASA, again... I think if, it, if you pick any planet that was reachable in reasonable budgets and spacecraft sizes, Mars is it. I mean, Venus is kind of a lost cause. No reason to go there. It's, to map it, they mapped it to the radar mapping. It was very good. Mercury is too strange and small. It's basically a moon. It has an atmosphere that forms in two, 20 seconds when the sun comes up. The atmosphere is four inches high and then it freezes on the other <laughs> side. And it's a four-hour day. So Mercury's not. But it is tidally locked to the sun, yeah, so the you do have this interzone, right? Yeah, the sun's half the size of the sky. Right. right. But Mars is Mars has got enough stuff. It's got volcanoes and old oceans, I guess, and ice caps. And, and the next one out is Jupiter, and it's too hard to get to. And a rope breath. They're going to they're going to drop uh, Galileo into the Ionian atmosphere in August. Are they? And, what do you mean by that? Well, it's it's a really crippled space. Actually, Galileo is an example of early bio. It's, it's it's a model. They launched. I remember seeing Galileo being packaged to go to, to be launched on the shuttle. And this is the shuttle after Challenger, so it never shipped out of JPL. But I remember seeing. I went to JPL to see the spacecraft get created up. And the high-gain antenna, which is this great big mesh thing, it was like this TV satellite dish. It's all folded up. And when they did launch it three years later, it never opened. So instead of huge bit stream and bandwidth and all kinds of power, they had to work with some... The low-gain antenna size of a pizza pie. Well, they had to slingshot around. Because the big ones didn't work. You're right. And they slingshot, slingshot around. Well, the, the mistake is the following. It's really interesting. When the shuttle blew up, NASA was no longer permitted to carry liquid fuel upper stages in the cargo bay. 
which are considered too dangerous. They have to carry solid fuel, which is safer, but it packs very little punch. Well, it doesn't uh, doesn't generate much. It's rust about a third. So they had to design a new way to get to Jupiter, which they would go around Venus twice and steal some of the angular momentum of Venus by slingshotting around it, coming back again and getting faster, or stealing from the planets. And then they passed the Earth twice. And on the way into the sun, the Huygen antenna, which was still wrapped up, got heated and flexed and shrunk and flexed and shrunk. It was never designed to be going to the inner solar system. It was supposed to go straight out on the express. And when they tried to open it up on the second time, it came up like this. It was a screw up. It was a huge screw up. And so the mission planner said, it's $2 billion down the tube and for congressional hearings and we scrapped it or we figured it put something out. So on the way to Jupiter, they re- did its brain because it has an operating system and software is very configurable. And they changed Galileo's brain to think differently, process differently, and see differently and hear differently. And by the time it got to Jupiter, even with this tiny little pizza pie dish, it had a, it had a, a, a re-entry vehicle, this sort of saucer-like pod that would be dropped into the Joby Totally, They'd never be able to do that in, in their lifetime. It's one life to lose that. And they got to the Jovian system, and by that time, they had learned to see in these jail bar uh, methods. They, they would, it would take strips out of the sky, and then the ground controllers would say, look, there's more rings going across. Or now, take smaller strips and compress them as much as you can and then send them, trickle them to us. And so they couldn't change the hardware, but they could change the software. And Galileo was sort of a very early 20th century metaphor of the digital buyout moving out, being transmitted massless, more of all, into a receiver. Uh-huh. It was smarter when it got there. Smarter when, when it got went there. When it went. Yeah. So, so then it all made it? Yeah, it's been in orbit for two and a half years. But they had to stream these pictures back instead of in real time. It takes months for the data to come back. Yeah, it's like, it's like um, 600 baht or No, it's, it's um, eight bits a minute or something. It's something crazy. Yeah. But it's, they've done fantastic science. They dropped the probe, they ran the recorder, and they recorded it. The probe went down to the Jovian atmosphere, down the level of like that, and collapsed because the pressure is on shoots. And, and now they're, getting, they're going to do a close approach. It's only four times higher than the highest volcanic plume above Io, because Io has sulfur volcanoes. And they're going to do only four times, they're going to graze the top of the volcanic plume, and it may not survive. Um, but they're going to try to do as much as they can and get the best. And it, it, it may just sort of burn it, destroy it. But it's like journey from being... Let go to being burned is all taped, and that comes back. Yes, right. Bit by bit, and it's been in orbit. And the Jovian system is like its own solar system. It's been in orbit for three years, three and a half years, just sweeping by different moons. But what you really need out there is several tons of state-of-the-art imaging equipment and all kinds of fancy steering engines. And what an interesting system! Yeah. This yeah. mission to Saturn is pretty epic. Cassini, yeah. Cassini is the last big heavy mission, six tons of the spacecraft weighs. And it's going to drop a thing into the atmosphere of Titan that will land on the surface. And 
There may be methane hydrocarbon oceans sized tar blocks in the greatest surfing in the solar system. Six hundred foot on tar? It's like Solaris Titan. It's a really strange world. Yeah, yeah it's not bad. And yet, and, and the funny thing, all of it, our moon, we're an oddball. Our moon is way out of proportion. It's way too big. For That's why they think now that uh, our moon is here because of a massive collision. There's no way the Earth could have captured something the size of the moon, so it had to have been a very bad hair day. <laughs> a Mars-sized object crashed into the Earth. And it separated. Melted. Now you just stuff up into orbit and then it gets into this kind of system. And where we're going, and hopefully, and gets her into our moon. Yeah. The biota group goes back through time. We go to fossil sites. We went to the Cambrian fossils of British Hill, which were the first weird creatures that had body parts. And then we saw the human fossils in Cambridge, England, the professors in the modern day. And the next trip, we're going to go back to 3.5 billion years ago to Western Australia, where you have two interesting things. You have the oldest evidence of life that's certain. Um, the stromatolites. The stromatolites and, and, and bacterial <coughs> chemical traces. But the stromatolites are these towers that were the smokestack polluters of the Cambrian. They, they're colonial forms of mushy tops that have blue-green algae on top. Because if you went back to the Earth then, you'd have to wear a spacesuit because there's no oxygen. And so these things lived around all the continental margins of these towers, and they pumped oxygen out of the atmosphere. It was very poisonous, very toxic substance. And if, in Shark Bay at Hamlin Pool, if you lie down at night next to where the stroms are, there's this last remaining living stromatolite colony. You get high in the oxygen they're putting out. They're putting out so much. There's a living colony? There's a living and it's, colony. what are its sides made of? It's, 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 all made, it's hard as rock. Okay. What happens is the top is this mushy layer of photosynthesizing yeah. up to 3 billion individuals per square inch. And then underneath there's, yeah, it's colonial. It would have been the only thing that you could see with your own eyes that was obviously alive for two billion years of Earth's history. And underneath there's chemosynthetic stuff that um, basically the stromatolites suck iron oxide and calcium out of the atmosphere and built these towers are below it. You know, ocean levels of rise and fall in these tides, and these towers supported the top of the pond. And they're hard as rock. And half the iron ore in the world is from endless. Those are like bodies. You know, life made the continents. So life, the earliest life on Earth, uh, built the American railroads. That's right. That's right. It's, that was a biological process. It was not a... The accretion of iron. iron. And not oxidized iron. Uh-huh. Um, so what happened was the stromatolites pumped and pumped and pumped. Elbow mats is what they're called, but these are mats on a stick. Um, and they, they pumped and pumped and pumped, and that one point billion years ago, this sudden fantastic thing happened, the oxygen holocaust, where the oxygen levels just climbed into the stratosphere, and 
poisoned out. Well, Earth's been through many mass extinctions, but this one was a real horrific one because any cell, single cell organism that could not handle incoming high densities of O2, which are very poisonous, uh, basically ripped the cells apart. And so there was this mass extinction, and there were a few cells that had absorbed these things called mitochondria that could absorb the oxygen that turned it into an energy factory. One in trillions of cells. Yeah, but, but they then all present life was traced back to the yeah. survivors of that and challenge. When you go jogging or something, and you, suddenly your body runs out of oxygen and cells in your your muscles switch back to the old system of metabolizing chemosynthetically. Um, you get lactic acid and it makes you sore because you're going back to the ancient system before mitochondria to get energy quick, but at a price. And so stromatolites is this tiny pond they found that's very saline, and there's, they're there. They're there, and they're three billion years old. Three billion they're years in the same place. And we're going to go there and say. And these are this is, and this is first. This is first life. This is. This is the first. Well, the first significant. Well, it's a column. Like it's the first colonial. Like, okay. And stromatolites go back to 3.5 billion years, and the earliest evidence of life is 3.86 billion years. So they're very close to, and the, the impacts, the meteorite impacts, stopped about. 3.9. So life actually popped up pretty, pretty quickly, quickly after the... Within a hundred million years yeah, after the cometarian fall ceased. For waters, water, and, and you didn't have the surface of the earth getting all molten every once in a while. Because something hit it too hard. But we're going to thank the stromatolites for, for giving us oxygen and apologize the fact that we're putting all the CO2 back. Okay. But plants like CO2. But yeah, Earth of Earth of two billion years ago was really weird because chances are the oceans were brown because they were full of incredible the continents had no plants to, to hold the land here. So the outwash was eight times higher or more. Of huge river systems of braided river systems pouring uh, off the continents. Brown oceans, the Himalayas and the Rockies are mountains that will never appear again because there's never going to be that kind of deposition again. They're unique. They're creations of, of the fact that, well, they're full of life, but they're finding more and more now that life and water are the, the reason we have plate tectonics in the first place and that we have mountain ranges. Why do life and water drive plate tectonics? They think that, well, there's, there's several sort of interlocking factors. One is that, that water lubricates uh, and allows this this kind of, of continuous movement. Water also absorbed a lot of the crap that came through volcanism early in the Earth's history, maybe from comet impacts created the oceans. And that was a big sponge that damped up all this horrible, junky, toxic stuff coming out of the bottoms of the oceans. So it created create a cleaner, not a clean, but a cleaner atmosphere, which in turn support rain, which in turn support all the, the upwash. And life sealed the continents in, in this hypersea of roots coming out of the ocean and sealed all that land in so that the, the upflow of the erosion hasn't been 
at all what it used to be. So future generations of mountains will be quite different. But now, they, in the last two years, they've discovered this fantastic... You know, they discovered these black smokers in the, in the mid-80s where huge hot water full of sulfates and stuff is pouring out of the bottom of the ocean and there's tons of life all around it eating chemicals, not needing the sunlight. Bacteria? Bacteria and tube worms and crabs and... Tube worms up to six oh, feet yeah, long. And that's eating the like, it's, pollution. It's eating the yeah. pollution. And, and they, they were always wondering... How did, if life evolved around one black smoker, they don't last long. They kind of go out after a while. How did it get all across the planet? Because all the black smokers have about the same kind of life. And they found these things called super plumes, which are underwater uh, Mount St. Helens that happen in water. So think of Mount St. Helens as this massive ash thing. And what happens under the ocean, too, you get this blowout that happens of, of hot water. It's the same as a, as a pyroclitic ash explosion that comes out into up to 12 to 15 miles across, boluses of hot water that's very hot. And they come blowing off in, as a mushroom cloud out bottom of the ocean, and then they get caught by waves, like by currents, and, and carried for hundreds of miles, or even a thousand miles. And they're full of life forms and that have been carried up in this express bus system and then they're, they're raining back down. On other plumes. On other plumes. So this kind of plume, super plume system may have been the engine that created and sort of transported life around constantly. So vol- you know, volcanism, underwater volcanism. Our roots. That's why we like jacuzzis. Volcanoes. <laughs> underwater volcanoes. Underwater volcanoes. Yeah, the world's largest underwater volcano is about 22 miles that way. The world's largest earthquake in 1998-7 was an 8.1 earthquake on that mountain. (laughs) When they went down with bathyscaphic stuff afterwards, they said that the entire area had been totally rearranged, that they couldn't recognize it. It's only 2,000 feet below the surface there. Having risen 12,000 feet, the ocean is 16,000 or 14,000 feet deep there. If we ever get to Mars, you'll see the great granddaddy of all solar system volcanoes. Olympus Mons, 80,000 feet. The top sticks out of the atmosphere. So mm. the, the atmosphere in the caldera is different. We had a land mission in there or something. That's a, I didn't realize that. That's a giant. Uh, yeah, the, vol- the Hawaiian shield volcanoes are the closest thing to it on yeah. the Earth. Well, I heard that the, when I was at Volcano Park, the, the volume encompassed by Mauna Loa, is, is, you could fit all the Sierra Nevada inside it. So in, in effect, it's, it's the single largest structure on the planet. It's created by one process. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's the world's largest mountain by volume, and if you measure it from its seabed floor, it's the world's tallest mountain because it's 13,000 feet above the sea, but 16,000 feet yeah. uh, it rises from the ocean there. Mm-hmm. 
I'm living on a great, and there's a theory now as to why there's a hot spot on Earth here. Is there some kind of a harmonic, constructive harmonic that's going on? It's actually breaking up the crust. Uh, and there may be one on the other side. I don't know where look. At the exact antipodes of the one? Yeah, there, it may be lower. It may be, it may be, that's why I have it's a little bit of a tendency. Ooh, yeah. good. Cravings are the greatest products that their imaginations can generate. And how, and is, it, is it to help ourselves or is it to... I think it's, it's kind of a semi-conscious push for the drive that human beings have had to build and to make things, make life create, you know, we're creating tool-making things. And perhaps they don't lie, but they'll make they'll make the next phase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 